Several years ago, my husband and I traveled to Ethiopia, where we have a son who's living as a missionary. And he had this great idea for an adventure we were going to have. So we drove 10 hours on undrivable roads through many herds of goats and sheep and monkeys and through uh, past three-foot hole-deep potholes on roads that were mostly not paved with no bathrooms to a holy city called Lalabella. It was henna, which is Ethiopian Christmas, and it was the annual pilgrimage of people making their trek to Lalabella. Lalabella is known for... Am I going to have a problem, Chris? Okay. Lalabella is known for its churches. And interestingly enough, its churches are built where you cannot see them from ground level. They dug down into the ground and built the churches down into the ground because they wanted to protect the churches from invading nations who might destroy them. So after we got there, the long trek there, we um, looked and found these churches, walked down into them, and interestingly enough, they were having worship services. And I wanted to show you what it looked like because I think you will be a bit surprised, just as I was, if we can look at them. <laughs> Sorry, this worked. Chris had me up going really well last night, so the pictures are really add a lot of meaning to it. Wow. I hope you enjoyed your groups this morning. <laughs> We're almost there. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yes. I, I'm not, I don't really honestly remember. It's not on Christmas, the same Christmas, although they do celebrate Jesus' baptism, birth. They celebrate with parades and decorations and everything, interestingly enough. They're of the lineage of the Queen of Sheba, and they take a lot of pride in that. It wasn't, I think, I think it was December. It might have been early January. Okay. Okay. Oh, good. We have a picture. Okay. This is one of the largest churches from, um, and it, at this angle, it looks a little elevated, but when you actually look at it, it's really even. And they're ba built of rock. Um, let me see. Did it? Did it move for me? Yes, there is another picture. You can see the people on the side, how big it is. And this is down in there. So we crawled down in there into um, one of the churches to look around. And there are actually several. At one of the churches, they held a worship service. And we saw this. Priests dressed in white linen robes with turbans and gaudy necklaces, carrying instruments that made rhythmic sounds that they made in unison. Um, the head priest, all dressed in black in this picture, um, would begin a chant in Amharic, and they would respond. Sometimes they would sing a tune and respond. Um, they obviously had different levels of the priesthood. Their robes had different colors and all. And it was a very strange sight to me. I kept trying to figure out what is going on. There's, there was a point in which they walked around and put white powder on crosses on everybody's forehead. And um, 
Obviously, the high priests had uh, a lot of direction. They had their scriptures and little books that they would read. And the whole time I was thinking, I don't understand this. This is weird. What in the world is this about? Uh, bells, gaudy necklaces, music, chants. This is strange. And you know what? I think that's what many of us think when we read Leviticus and Old Testament worship. We think, what in the world were these priests doing? You know, this is strange that God said they had to do these weird sacrifices. They had to wear weird clothes. They had to do all this stuff. And, and we don't even get what that means. But it seems that God, in his beautiful plan, has given us glimpses of his eternal plan through things like the priesthood. He had plans for a kingdom made up of those who are saved and has revealed that plan through all the books way back in the Bible. Even the story of Samuel, although it's historical and talks about the development and establishment of a kingdom through the lineage of David, it all gives us a picture of God's long-term plan. When Moses received the law, he got a very detailed description of what they were supposed to do. Rules for how to live, how to worship, how to approach God. All these things were given to point us to Christ. The law given to Moses was given to point to Christ. All the rituals related to worship in the Old Testament were given to point us to Christ. The tabernacle, its layout, the articles in the tabernacle, they were all given to point us to Christ. The offerings and the sacrifices were given to point us to Christ. The priesthood itself was to point us to Christ. Way back in Exodus 19, I want you to turn there. Exodus 19, verse 2 through 6, has a, has a couple of verses you may not remember. And it speaks about this long-term plan God has for his kingdom. This is verse 2. They, that's the children of Israel, set out from Rephidim, and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up with God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you up to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel, to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests. That was God's plan right as he was beginning to give the law. And the book of 1 Samuel begins with the picture of priests. There's Eli, this man who loved God imperfectly. He wasn't a very good parent. But he did have some ways that he represented God. And then there were these two worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were very poor examples. They didn't even know God, Scripture tells us. And yet, they're serving as priests. When viewing their lives, certainly some of the children of Israel thought, 
is this, is this what a priest is supposed to look like? Is this what God wanted? Surely, there might be somebody who could do a better job than me. And as I read those stories, I'm thinking, why didn't God remove them right then? Why did he leave them there in the temple for, in the house of God for so long? Somebody else would have done a better job. Then Samuel enters the scene. Although Samuel is not given the title of priest in Scripture, he seems to display some characteristics reserved for the priesthood. Um, in 2, 18 and 19, we are told that he wore a linen ephod. says that his mother made him one and brought it to him each year. An ephod was a garment that the Lord instructed as appropriate clothing for the priesthood. This is described in Exodus 28. And uh, while Samuel's ephod probably was not the ornate one described in Exodus, it certainly is called an ephod just the same, that garment reserved for the priesthood. Both in 2.18 and 3.1, the phrase that Samuel ministered to the Lord and before the Lord, this is the same kind of language used when God told Moses to have Aaron and his lineage minister to the Lord as priest. They, uh, Samuel lived at the house of the Lord like the priesthood would have. And in 3.15, after he's heard God speak and he doesn't want to tell Eli, it says that Samuel got up in the morning to do his regular job, which was opening the doors of the temple. So these statements sort of seem to imply that Samuel was sort of doing some priestly duties. So in your homework, you saw that even before his birth, his mother made a vow to the Lord, a Nazarite vow, setting him apart as consecrated to the Lord. So from childhood, he was about the Lord's business. You saw in your homework that he, the scripture tells us in 126 that he grew in favor with God and man. He lived among wicked people, these, these priests that he lived with. And Samuel, after hearing God's voice in the night, and recognizing it was so, did submit himself to the Father's will, although he was scared to, when he obeyed God's instructions to tell Eli what he was going to do. And as we'll continue to see in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel spoke God's word to the people, and none of his words fell to the ground. In fact, chapter 3, 19 through 21 says this, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the, uh, none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So in a sense, Samuel is a mediator between God and the people. I want to propose to you that Samuel's description is given us so that we see hints, glimpses, pointing to a better, righteous, perfect priest, to Christ. Samuel can be seen as a type of Christ. Now, when we talk about types, we don't mean it's the real thing. We are not saying Samuel and Jesus are equal. We are not saying that at all. 
What we're saying by the word type is it's just an aspect or a picture or an aspect of their character or their life which represents Christ. It points to him. Even in contrasting Samuel's appearance to the priest with whom he lived, we see a sharp contrast. And that contrast, I think, is even supposed to cause us to think of another, a great high priest, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. This Jesus was not just an ordinary priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So like the picture that Samuel gave us, Jesus from childhood was about the Father's business. Remember in Luke 2 when his family went to worship and they couldn't find Jesus? They went back to the temple and there he was discussing scripture with the teachers and scribes. And after three days, his mother said, you know, son, we've been looking, basically, son, we've been looking for you. And he said, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? As you looked in your lesson, you saw that the same phrase spoken about Samuel grew in favor with God and man. Even that phrase is, ca is calling us to think, to point to Christ, who in Luke, oh, we're told um, that he was, I believe it's Luke, that we're told that he grew in favor with God and man. Jesus lived among wicked people. And in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, he's accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and he was. Now, it also tells us in a far greater way that Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. That's one thing for Samuel to submit himself to an, a, a man, an older priest. But for Jesus, who is equal with God, John 6 says, this is Jesus speaking, John 6, 38 to 40. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Samuel spoke God's word to the people, and God blessed that. But Samuel didn't speak all the time just God's word. Jesus spoke God's word to others. In Luke John 12, he says, I, Jesus speaking, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what I say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. So Jesus himself spoke the words of God. Samuel may have been a consecrated young man pledged by his mother to fulfill a vow, but Jesus was set apart for a far greater purpose. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Samuel was a mediator, a type of mediator, but Jesus was the real mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Samuel was only a picture, a shadow of the real thing, a glimpse into a far greater one. How kind of our Father to show us Christ over and over in types, in the law, in the rituals in the Old Testament, all these things so that we would see him time after time he has revealed Christ to us. But did you know that scripture tells us, those of us who are Christ followers, that we are priests? Turn to 1 Peter 2.9 and look at it with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I want to be sure we're clear here. I am not saying that we are equal with God, that we're priests, and so we're equal to our great high priest. No way. We are called to the same thing that the priests in the Old Testament were, to point to Christ. So what does God really mean that we are as a royal priesthood? We, our mission is to represent him, to point others to, point him to others. And just like Samuel and the saints of old, we have that same responsibility. We too have been set apart. Um, that 1 Peter 2.9 says that we're chosen we're called. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be you also be holy in all your conduct. We're to be about our Father's business. Remember Matthew 6, 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. We are to grow. 2 Peter 3, uh, 18 says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must submit ourselves to his great plan. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? And the verse before it says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Then we are to speak the words of God. This is 1 Peter 3.15. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope's within you. But yet do it with all gentleness and respect so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Sorry. So tell me, sisters, how are you doing in your ministry as a priest? Are you seeking to live a life, a holy one, a set apart for God? Are you pointing others to Christ? Are you about his business or about your own busyness? Are you pointing others to Christ? Are you seeking to grow by spending time in his word and prayer? Are you pointing others to Christ? As you live in the midst of a wicked world, are you endeavoring to use your gracious words and righteous deeds, although imperfect, to point to Christ? Are we submitting our wishes and desires to his authority so he can fulfill in us a better plan? Are our words ones that speak truth, seasoned with salt and grace, causing others to want to know him? Are we pointing to Christ? For some of us, we're probably a lot more like Eli than we'd like to think. Maybe our children are first in our lives. We don't want to tell them no. We don't want the conflict. Maybe we do really love God like Elo probably did, or we're just ignoring some of those commands, especially the ones that are really hard. Or maybe we tend to think that obedience is not that big a deal. I mean, I've got the big stuff covered. Surely God knows I'm not perfect. Maybe we've forgotten what we're called to be. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Sisters, we are a royal priesthood called to point others to Christ. Are we ministering well? Now, there may be one of you in this room that thinks, I don't get all this priesthood stuff. In fact, I just kind of don't even get all this commitment thing. And maybe it's confusing. Maybe it's like I felt in Ethiopia. And if so, your leader and some of us would love to ch chat with you and help you understand more about the great high priest who lived a perfect life and died a horrible death so that we could be released from sin and its power and guilt. And we'd love to share that with you. For those of you who, and those of us who do know Christ, we're a kingdom of priests. God's plan from long ago. May we bring him glory as we serve him. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you from darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your sweetness in giving us over and over a picture of who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a high and holy calling. 
Oh, Lord, may we do it well. May we point others to you. May, we, may our lives, the words we speak, the way we act, the thoughts we have, would they all point to you, Lord? Use us this day, and may you be delighted as you watch us, Lord. Give us the grace and the enabling to do it. In your name we pray, amen.